The following episode may contain material that some listeners may find triggering or disturbing and may not be suitable for younger audiences, including depictions of sexual assault, violence, and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. You're going to be a superhero one day, so don't give up, because I truly believe that I am in my own right, along with plenty others. We are superheroes because I have taken something that should have killed me. And I mean the congestive heart failure, the HIV, the child molestation, growing up in a system, feeling like nobody loved me. You know, I, I was raped at one time. Like all these things, I took all that and it has empowered me to be this superhuman being. And I've decided to take on the world with both fists to blazing. And so I would tell myself, you're going to be a superhero one day, so just don't give up. Just just don't give up. These are stories featuring everyday women who have overcome some extraordinary obstacles. From Ash Media Network, this is the good news. Hi there, my name is Ashley, and some of you may already know me as the host and producer of the Slay Girl Slay podcast. And for the last few years, I have been sharing my personal stories in hopes to motivate and inspire people around the world. You see, everyone has a story, and I know you have one too. And sometimes our stories are stories of hurt and pain and sometimes sorrow. Our stories have also become stories of triumph, stories of resilience, stories of victory. My parents taught me a long time ago that the things that you go through, the challenges that you face, the obstacles you find yourself in, aren't really about you. How you went through a tough time, how you got through a really rough season, how you overcame, is not for you. Your story is for someone else. What I mean by that is, how you overcame something, how you stayed the course, how you chose to fight back or pick up your life and change it, That very thing could be someone else's hope. That obstacle you got through is teaching someone else that, well, hey, if you got through it, then so can I. Your story may be the very thing that someone needs to hear to change their life, to keep going, to hold on just a little longer. There is power in not only sharing your story, but there is power in listening. When we sat down to create this podcast in every single interview, I learned that although we are all different, we are all the same in so many ways, and that we're all human with real life things that we all experience at one point or another that it doesn't matter how much money we may or may not have who did or did not raise us, 
how cool our jobs may be, or how nice our house is, that it doesn't matter, that we are more alike than we are not. It is my hope that when you listen to each story that we share, that you do so with an open mind and an open heart. Some stories may be harder to listen to than others, so listen responsibly. But I hope you stick around and listen until the end, because with every hard challenge, there is a victory to prevail. There is no dark day without a good day to follow. There is always something good to look forward to. Today's story is from Dawn. When I met Dawn, she had every quality I love when I first meet someone. She wasn't shy, she's from New York, and definitely a tell-you-like-it-is, straight, no-chaser kind of person. Her personality alone can fill the entire room, and I know you will agree when you listen to her story. Here's Dawn. My name is Dawn Trotter, and I am from Buffalo, New York, the land of the snow. I have three children, and I have four grandchildren. I have three boys and one girl. So, first of all, you know, in high school, in my senior year, I was voted the most loudest. (laughs) I had a big mouth back then, and I have a big mouth now. But, I mean, as far as the person that I was, I I sort of want to say that I'm almost the same person. You know, I was always the person that had lots of friends, you know, kind of everybody liked me. You know, I wasn't so much the cool girl, but I was the, everybody could get along with me, girl, right? And I didn't like to see anybody get picked on, so I would kind of stand up for whoever. But in high school, I grew up in the foster care system. So by the time I made it to high school, I was like in a group home. You know, I knew who my dad was. I talked to him, but you know, he was still doing whatever he was doing. I I knew where my mother was. Again, that relationship wasn't good. Um, And I had a half sister. There was like no family, like even till this day, like, you know, I wish that, you know, I had that Huxtable family, right? That we could have a family reunion or all the cousins grow up together and they're so close. And, you know, me and my sister live in the same city and we just now at the age of 50 and she's almost going on 56 we just now are like okay around each other I was in foster care from the age of seven until I aged out in 18 it was almost like I should have stayed at home with my parents because you know in foster care I got molested you know I was getting physically abused mentally you know so it wasn't nothing better for me so by the time I became a teenager right I had all these thoughts in my mind and You know, I just wanted to get away from the world because I felt like nobody was for me. And then when I was in my senior year is when I got pregnant with my first daughter. There's not a handbook for when you're a foster child and you turn 18. It's just sort of kind of like you're 18. Okay, you got to go figure it out for yourself. Like they don't give you tools to go out into the world and be an adult, pay bills, get your own house. You literally are just left to your own devices to figure it out. So when I had my first daughter, like I said, you know, it was like trying to find my way in the world. I got my first apartment officially on my own. 
when my daughter was like three. So in between that time I had her until she was about three, I was like kind of fumbling around, like staying with friends. I was in like this place where it was like for girls who had one baby who lived in the foster care system type of thing. But when she turned three, I finally was able to, you know, get my own apartment. And then actually by that point, I had got pregnant with another child, which was my middle daughter. By that point, I had started dabbling in drugs. I'm working. I started college, but also now I'm partying a lot. You know, there was a lot of trauma that I had went through when I was a kid and when I was a teenager that I had never really dealt with. And that was a way to kind of keep the demons at bay. To be truthfully honest, I was a person who, I went to my yearly checkup, that was it. Like I went to my yearly checkup and when I went to my yearly checkup, I did get tested. I felt like long as I go to the doctors once a year, get my checkup, I should be good. So in my mind felt like I was trying to get myself together. I was, you know, trying to get to stop using the drugs. I decided, you know, there was going to be, I was going to get in, you know, just a a committed relationship and it was going to be with one person and we were going to be in love and that's what it was going to be. And I met someone and, you know, we connected and for the first six months, like I was real adamant for whatever reason about using condoms and he was very adamant about why do we have to use them? You know, when I think back, I remember like every time it was like, why do we have to use this? It's just me and you. I'm not cheating on you. And I don't think you're cheating on me. And after about six months, you know, I caved. I made a conscious decision that, okay, you know, like, oh, I love him. It is just us. And I trust him. And yeah, fine. We don't have to use the condom. We started having sex without condoms. And about that ninth, 10th month, I'll never forget. I was walking down the street. And there was this place called Group Ministries. And I was walking past and I had went over in that area to do something. And there was a lady standing outside and I knew her. And she said, hey, Dawn, you want to go upstairs and get an HIV test? And I was like, no, I already, you know, it's not my time yet. Like I I get tested, you know, it's not my time. And she was like, no, come on, like I'll give you a gift card. So in my mind, I'm like, okay, well, what's the big deal? She about to give me a $50 gift card. You know, you ain't got no reason to worry. Just go on up there and get it. marched up them steps I was all like okay hey come to get my test and the guy swabbed my mouth and we're chatting it up and we're laughing because it takes about 20 minutes for the results to come back and he's asking me the general questions and then all of a sudden he gets this look on his face and he's like um I don't normally do this but can you look at this for me and he turns the thing around and the second line was literally so faint and I remember throwing it down saying I don't know what the hell that is but you need to take this test again. So he swabbed me again. Now I'm freaking out. I'm sitting there, my leg is shaking. I'm like, this has got to be a joke. 20 minutes went by again, and he just still had the same look on his face. And I remember him saying, I'm so sorry. We're gonna have to get blow work because there's a second line. And I remember jumping up and I remember the chair fell over and I ran out the building. And I ran past the lady, you know, had originally asked me to come upstairs and I ran past her and she's screaming my name. 
And I remember ending up in her car. I don't remember her getting to me. And I remember being at a hospital and I remember them taking 14 tubes of blood from me. And all I remember is a bunch of people standing around me in white coats. And I'm just kind of sitting there like, I gotta wake up from this dream. This is like really fucked up. Like, when do I wake up? And I remember this lady saying to me, it's gonna be all right. You need to just take this pill. The next thing I know, I was sitting in my living room, just kind of like sitting on my couch. And it was during the day, so the kids were all at school, so I was at home by myself. And at that time, actually, my uncle lived with us, too, in the basement. So he was there. I mean, he was in the basement, but the kids were gone. And I remember just sitting there in the living room, like, this this ain't real. And I remember my uncle coming upstairs and saying, what's wrong with you? And I just looked at him and I said, I'm HIV positive. And the look on his face was like, what the hell did she just say? And I just looked at him, and he turned around and just walked back downstairs. But I just, I, I remember just sitting there like, I'm about to die. That's all I could think is, I am about to die. And then I was like, who's going to take care of my kids? All the things that I did, God is punishing me. I'm about to die. I sat there that day. I didn't say anything to anybody that first day other than, like, I blurted it out to my uncle. I remember this was the, like, the most thing that, like, sticks with me and why I love my father so much. Me and my dad had gotten into an argument a couple weeks before I got my diagnosis, and we hadn't had a conversation for a couple weeks. And my, this time, my dad lived in Vegas. And I remember calling my father, and when he answered the phone, he was like, what? And I was like, well... I know you don't want to talk to me, but I just figured that you should know I'm about to die. I got diagnosed with HIV, and I just figured you want to know. And I remember silence. And I'm like, hello? He was like, okay, bye. And he hung up on me. And that, in that moment, I cried for hours. Because I thought, my father hates me. But I'll never forget, it had to be like in the morning time on whatever day it was. I remember going to sleep that night and waking up because you know how you could feel somebody staring at you? And I woke up and my father was sitting on the side of my bed. He had drove straight through from Vegas to say to me, I don't care what you have, you will always be my baby girl. That was the moment I knew that everything was going to be okay. And I just was like, okay, I can do this. I can put the things in order that need to be in order. I was listening to an episode on NPR's Code Switch called The Women Behind the Montgomery Bus Boycott. And when I say I was tapped in from the moment I pressed play, 
When we think about the bus boycott, we think about Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King, but we never really learned how this bus boycott was organized. But in this episode, you hear directly from the many women who organized for months and did what it took to make this bus boycott happen. And y'all, I was locked in the entire time. If you're interested in hearing more stories like this, you have to check out NPR's podcasts. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories of joy, stories of resilience, stories that are distinct and varied and nuanced as the Black experience itself. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. So, as someone that has textured and curly hair, I'm excited to share Clairol's Textures and Tones came out with a permanent color range specifically for curly and coily hair types. Say hello to the improved formula and new look while preserving curls and shine. With 12 shades of brilliant intense color, no ammonia, and stacked with argon and olive oil to deliver some much needed moisture and vibrancy to your hair. So if you're my girl that likes a little color to spice up your look from time to time, the new Clairol Textures and Tomes was designed with texture and color specialists, and it was created with you in mind. Clairol's mission is simple, to make every woman feel beautiful and confident and help her live colorfully through accessible and easy to use products. Save your time and your money and give yourself a new hairdo because it's not the hair color you were born with, but the hair color you were meant to be. Clairol, it is so me. So now a week into the diagnosis, after I told my my friends and my kids and stuff or whatever, like, I got to call this guy. Call the guy and I say to him, is there something you need to say to me? And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I went to the doctors and I tested positive for HIV. And I know good and well, when we got together, I was negative because I had just went to my doctor's appointment. Do you need to tell me something? And I remember him not saying nothing for a minute. And then he said, well, I don't know what the big deal is. Somebody did it to me. We could just be together forever. Like, what's the problem? Let me come over there. Let me talk to you. And I remember hanging up on him like this dude is crazy. Like he knew he had this and just did whatever. Now, at this time, I didn't know that you could do a police report on somebody for intentionally infecting you. I didn't know any of this. So I just kind of like got this order of protection not fully telling the police why I needed it I just kept saying he was harassing me because he was started coming to my house he was calling my phone like you know I had to tell my kids don't let him in so yeah the guy that infected me basically told me let's be together forever then I went into this funk of I'm gonna die I'm gonna die on my own terms and so I went into overdrive on using I was getting high every day I would get high on the weekends. Like, I was one of those people that got high who kept a job. I would get high on the weekends. I'd pay the bills first, and then I'd do whatever. But then I was doing it every single day. And then it got to the point where I was just like, this is not happening fast enough, so I'm going to help it along faster. So I took all these pills and tried to kill myself. 
my daughter, my oldest daughter is funny because she. This is my best friend. This is always been. She is the me to the tenth power. I remember her saying to me one day because I had stopped like physically touching my kids too for the first six months. I wouldn't hug them. I wouldn't kiss them. I would not touch them because I thought I was gonna give it to them. But I remember like maybe six months in or whatever, my daughter saying to me one day, "Why are you acting like this? You do know you're not gonna die, right?" And I'm like, "What?" She was like, Ma, we learned about this in school. Like, you're not going to die, and I don't understand why you're using separate plates because we can't catch it that way. You know that, right? And so, of course, that didn't immediately take me off of that crazy ride I was on. It kind of, like, peaked something in me. Like, well, damn, it's it's almost six months in, and I'm still here. Uh Well, maybe I'm not going to die. There was a lot of ups and downs in that first two years. You know, I'm doing good. I'm not doing good. I'm depressed. I'm not depressed. Okay, I'm going to die. No, I'm not going to die. Okay, I'm going to stop using. No, I'm going to continue to use. You know, I'm going to go about life like everything is okay, but in the back of my mind, I'm screaming. So there was a lot of emotional turmoil going on in my mind and in my life. And I was adding extra stuff because I was using this whole first two years. Like I was using, 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 using. I was going to my doctor's appointments. And so, like, in that second year, he kind of said to me, hey, um, there's this training that I think, you know, you would like. And it'll it'll tell you more about HIV and, you know, do you want to go to this training? Now, I instantly didn't want to go because it was word training. Who the hell wants to go to a training and who wants to go to learn about HIV? Like, who does that? But I went to this training and this training, I walked into this room. I'll never forget. There were 32 people in the room and this was 32 people who had been living with HIV and there was over 300 years of HIV experience in the room. And that meant you had people who had been living with HIV for 20 years, for 30 years, for 15 years, for five years. There were all these people in the room that had been living with HIV and they were telling these stories of how like they had lived all these years and they were working in clinics. I'm actually not going to die. Like I remember the first day walking in, sitting in the back and listening to everybody introducing themselves and telling how long they had been living with HIV. And I remember sitting there saying, I'm not going to die. When I came back from that training, that's when I realized I could use my voice to make sure that I got the best care that I could get and I could be an advocate for people. And I knew that I was a people person and I knew that maybe I could tell my story to somebody. That was the start of me being an HIV advocate. Hey, Ashley here. At this point in the story, I had asked Dawn with her diagnosis and all that she had already been through. Now that she was finally starting to truly see the light at the end of this tunnel, was she still using? Here's what she had to say. By that point when I, that like that three-year mark, by that three-year mark, I had stopped. I didn't stop because I was going to counseling. For me, the way to stop using was I started going to church. The spiritual part of it is what helped me sort of get over that hurdle. But I was struggling mentally. Now I'm going to the doctors on a regular, something I never did before. But now I'm like, okay, well, if something's wrong, say something. So I kept telling them, you know, I'm having these, like, chest pains, but I don't know, it ain't that serious, but it sort of kind of hurt or whatever. Come to find out I had congestive heart failure. 
I have a heart of a 90 year old woman. And so that was another thing that had me like mentally like, oh my God, I'm so young. I have a pacemaker. I have HIV. Like this has got to be punishment. But then I was like, then it's got to be for a reason too, because like I'm still here. The heart didn't kill me. The HIV didn't kill me. So I guess I need to just keep pushing forward and just doing whatever I got to do. This, this, this diagnosis, this, this thing that we call life is going to throw a lot of curves at us. It's going to throw so many things at us that we just can't control. But as long as you just know that tomorrow is going to be a new day, that's what you got to look at, right? I still today don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, right? I cannot wake up tomorrow. But today I'm like, I'm going to make the best that I can out of today. So I tell people all the time, listen, you can't change what happened back then. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Let's live in the right now. And so I tell people, live in the now, do the best that you can, be the best that you can. And just know that, you know, if you get this diagnosis, guess what? I mean, I hate to say it, it's cliche, but you're not going to die. The medication has gotten so good that there's now a shot that you can get every other month. We have what you call undetectable. U equals you. Undetectable means untransmittable, meaning that sexually I can't transmit the virus to anybody. And I tell people, like, look at that. Women are having babies who are HIV positive and the kids are negative. People are getting married. And I tell people, just live your life. And I, I tell people, too, for me, for many years, I was a people pleaser. So I wasn't doing what was good for me. I was doing what was good for everybody else. Once I realized, you know what? If it's bringing me stress, pain, drama, or not good energy, I am the most important person to me. So if I'm not happy, I'm not doing it. So we've come to my favorite part of the interview, and you'll see why. Every guest we have on the show, I always ask the same question at this point in the story, and it's twofold. For someone going through the same thing, what's the best piece of advice you can give them? And for someone who has never experienced this before, but can still learn something from you, what's the best piece of advice that you could give them get tested on a regular that's the first thing i say i don't care what kind of relationship you're in make sure that you are being responsible to you like for me i made a conscious decision on that day to not use a condom he didn't force me i made a conscious decision was it a bad decision absolutely so i tell people you know you have to be in control of that type of thing so get tested regularly and also for people who are not positive i say be conscious of the language that you're using and the things that you say, because, you know, everybody thinks, oh, my God, if I was HIV positive, I would kill myself. I would die. Or if I knew somebody, I wouldn't talk to them. I would never stop saying stuff like that, because nine times out of 10, you have a family member, a friend or an associate who's living with HIV and they don't have any support. Get educated on what HIV is and what HIV isn't. And that's on anything, right? That's on mental health. That's on anything. That's on people who are active drug users. You need to educate yourself so that you are not harming people that you don't even know you could harm. I think a lot of times now we have one hitter quitters, right? People are not, you know, always getting in relationships. It's, you know, I just want to do what I want to do for this one time or two times. And I don't want to be 
you know, bother with anything else. And that I think is a lot easier to say, listen, I don't know what you've been doing. You don't know what I've been doing. Let's just use this condom and call it a day. I feel like if it's something that you feel like you're looking for a relationship, I think that that conversation should happen in the beginning. Like, listen, when we get to the point of us becoming sexually active, it'll make me feel so much better. And if you love me, this is what you'll do. And because I love you, I want you to be comfortable with me. Before we have sex, let's go get tested together. But I tell people, you just got to stand stand firm, right? Because at the end of the day, this is your life at the end of the day. When you happen to, you know, start these relationships, you know, it's hard. I get it. Everybody just want to, you know what I'm saying, go in and do what you want to do. But unfortunately, we have to think about what could happen tomorrow. What is the worst thing that could happen after I make this decision? And that's why I run my mouth so much about this. That's why I'm willing to be on this. This is why I'm willing to do YouTube. This is why I'm willing to talk about this on Facebook, because I hope maybe that young 16-year-old girl that's trying to figure out if I should have sex with this boy and not make him use a condom. Yeah, you need to make him use a condom because having a baby is the least of your problems. You have to be the most important person to you. And I don't care what they say. If you don't feel comfortable, say no. Or this is how we're going to do it. Or like you said, 10 toes down. It ain't happening. Because guess what? You ain't the only one out there, boo. I think people like me have to continue to speak out. We have to continue talking about it. We have to make HIV not this scary topic to talk about, right? Like, you know, I, I hope that one day when someone says HIV, people don't be like, oh my God. Education is huge. You know, education is knowledge. I, I hate that, you know, they've taken sex ed out of school. Like, why? If we never needed it more, we need it now. Our children are having sex. You know, we have children sadly to say 12 and 13 who are contracting HIV because they're having unprotected sex. So we have to continue to talk about it, the education, advocacy. If this podcast that we're doing right now helps one person um, not become HIV positive because they feel like they were empowered to use their voice, or if this helps one person who's living with HIV realize I'm not going to die, um, I'm going to be okay, and there are support systems out there, then I've done my job. This is not the end of your life. I tell people all the time, and it sounds crazy, but HIV saved my life because it made me sit still and take a look at my life. It's given me a career, given me the opportunity to travel the world, something I never would have done. So for me, it saved me. And I know that's not what everybody's going to feel, but for me, it saved me. So I do know that I am meant to share my story. I am still here because God said, I still got work for you to do. So as long as I, he wakes me up every day, I know it's the day that I still need to run my mouth. I stopped being a people pleaser. I decided that I was the most important person to me. And I, I finally got my voice. So I think that's what changed from then to now. I didn't have that voice back then. Back when I got diagnosed, my self-esteem was none. I had no self-esteem. I was going, you know, in a place where I just did whatever 
if somebody else was acting like they loved me, and for me back then, sex meant love because I didn't know better, then that's what I did. It was no question. I wasn't going to, you know, I was surprised even at that point that, you know, for the first six months, I was like, no, we're going to use condoms. But I was learning myself at that point. I didn't realize it, but I was. I was starting to get like a speck on my voice, but it wasn't strong enough because he was able to wiggle me out of that. But today, you can't wiggle me out of nothing. I finally got that voice. I'm okay with who I am. I'm okay with my past. I'm not ashamed anymore. Once I put everything out there, nobody had anything to hold over my head. And so you couldn't control me. I've taken my power. I've found my voice. I'm happy with me right now. I asked Don one final question before our time together ended. And it's a question you will hear me ask throughout the entirety of this show. Looking back to who you were before, before all of this happened, before the diagnosis, before the advocacy, before becoming a mom, if you could go back in time and tell younger Dawn something that she needs to know, what would you say? You're going to be a superhero one day, so don't give up. Because I truly believe that I am, in my own right, along with plenty others, we are superheroes. Because I have taken something that should have killed me. And I mean the congestive heart failure, the HIV, the child molestation, growing up in a system, feeling like nobody loved me. You know, I, I was raped at one time. Like, all these things, I took all that. And it has empowered me to be this superhuman being. And I've decided to take on the world with both fists blazing. And so I would tell myself, you're going to be a superhero one day. So just don't give up. Just, Just don't give up. If you or someone you know is living with HIV and you need assistance, click the link in the description of today's episode to learn more about your local services that may be available to you. To know your status, get tested. Ask your healthcare provider for an HIV test. If you don't have a healthcare provider, many medical clinics, community health centers, and hospitals offer them too. Get educated and learn more about HIV at HIV.gov. You can also follow Dawn and her journey on her YouTube channel, linked in the description as well. If you loved today's episode, please leave us a rating and a review. The Good News Podcast is a collection of personal stories told week by week with brand new episodes every Monday. Brought to you by Ash Media Network. And remember... With every obstacle comes a victory. There is always something good to look forward to. Good news is always on the way.